to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we began a conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman. Dr. Friedman is well-known to many of you listening to this podcast. She's a retired psychology professor from Utah State University. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about her teaching career. Her emphasis was always on behavioral analysis 101, teaching the basics well. Any of you who have taken her Living and Learning with Animals online course or watched her presentations at the Clicker Expo, or attended her webinars, or her seminars, and her conference presentations, or read her many articles, or listened to her podcast interviews, knows that her expertise in teaching the basics runs very deep. So that's why when Dominique and I had questions about negative reinforcement, we turned to Susan. That was the subject of our last podcast series with her. I was especially interested in understanding the dynamic that we're all living through with the coronavirus and the changes that we're having to make in our behavior because of it. The coronavirus has certainly got me thinking about avoidance behavior much more than I normally do. So the discussion of wearing masks and how we behave in communal spaces created a great launching point for a discussion of the way in which science and ethics needs to be intertwined together. Susan has written an update to her 2004 article, What's Wrong with This Picture? Effectiveness is Not Enough. In that earlier article, she wrote about the humane hierarchy of intervention strategies. 20 years on, she is revisiting that subject with a new article that she's written. As she puts it, the purpose of the article is to reaffirm what we knew then and then to highlight important expansions in our thinking. So, of course, we had to ask, what were those changes? And we'll pick up again with Susan's answer. So there's a lot going on that's just very, very exciting. And it's also exciting to me to take stock, to have for us to have been a community for 20 years and more and take that retrospective look and reaffirm what we believed then or were advocating then and to also expand it to make it more more important. What has expanded? What, what are the new things that you felt you needed to put in this article? One of the beautiful things about the science of behavior change is that we all know a lot about it on a sort of non-conscious level because we're using these fundamental principles every day or we would fail to get out of bed. You know, We wouldn't even make it to the first, to our hand slapping the alarm, to the first behavior of the morning without making use of those principles. And so that analogy of gravity, I think, is, is a very powerful one. You know, very few of us really understand the deep details of gravity, and yet we make use of it all, all day long. You know, we're relying on it all day long. So when we talk about, you know, what are the new things, for me, most of them rang as, oh, yeah, I knew that. I, I often say when I talk to people who know so much more than I do, um, and they explain something to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I I knew that. But I didn't know it on that kind of verbal level. And so many of the things in the article you'll recognize as things that all of us have been talking about. I think what the 20 years or have known on that kind of um, non-conscious level, we've been making use of it all along. But I think that what this allows us to do is to put it into words, put it into onto a paper, and then have some good discussions about bringing it to the fore, making it verbally accessible has been, you know, just really um, 
really reinforcing for me. So as I um, scroll through the article, one, one of the new things right from the top, uh, tell me if you noticed any of these things, is how I describe what negative reinforcement is. Ooh, I highlight that. I highlighted it in yellow. I did. Good. I think that's very cool. So that's right yeah. in, the, in the second paragraph. It's taken me, yeah, so many decades. You know, I started learning and working in the field of applied behavior analysis when I was uh, 19 or 20 years old. I'm 66 now. It's been a really long deliciously long time to gain some expertise and to continue to find mentors to add, keep growing that expertise. I realize that in most of the textbooks, these these definitions are unbelievably circular. And I, uh, every year, kept trying to trim and polish and shine. And this is where I've landed as of uh, 2020, is that negative reinforcement is the process that strengthens escape and avoidance behavior. I might add, through consequences, um, and can you can so you I'm say it again? That, because I really, <clears throat> for me, when I read that, it was like wow. <laughs> okay, good. Negative reinforcement is the process, and I might add the consequential process that strengthens escape and avoidance behavior. Yes. And then we can take it apart, as we've all been doing in our teaching for a long time. That reinforcement always means strengthening. Mm -hmm. And the negative in this case is about subtraction, like in arithmetic. The animal uses its behavior to escape something present in the environment. We would say present in the antecedent environment. Or they use their behavior to avoid it or to prevent its onset entirely. And that prevention piece um, another word for avoidance was very helpful. And I, I'm trying to remember, unfortunately, the name is escaping me. If it comes to me, I will certainly um, cite the person who said, uh, Alex, who was the person who, uh, it was Paul Newman at the ASAC oh, conference. Okay. Conversation. It was a conversation. Yeah. Conversation. Right. Yeah. It was a conversation where he was we saying had. That the animal is postponing the, the, yeah, right. the aversive. Or preventing. And when I heard that, that opened up a new, you know, verbal repertoire, a new way of understanding and explaining how escape is different than avoidance. Mm -hmm. And um, I've worked on that distinction before, you know, I've pulled down all of my textbooks and opened them all up on the desk and sometimes all over the floor and up onto the, <laughs> and um, this has been going on for 40 years. It's such a, I'm so fortunate to be in a profession where I'm paid to learn. I guess in some ways we're all paid to learn, but that's another story. And trying to come to uh find a way to describe the difference between we did talk about that in the last podcast we did with you where mm -hmm. i asked you the difference between the two and you you define the two on the podcast mm -hmm. where basically you yeah. said that for in the escape situation the threat is present and the avoidance situation mm -hmm. it's not necessarily present you're you're trying to avoid it right you're preventing it or postponing mm -hmm. it and those two words were not words that I had connected to to describe this in my teaching mm -hmm. work, my dissemination work. And as soon as I heard them, that's an example of, oh, I knew that. But in other words, it doesn't give me new information, but it gives me new yeah. words to apply to it, to be an even more, um, you know, a clear, a clearer teacher. Always the mm -hmm. goal of a translator and a disseminator um, is finding those words to enliven people's understanding. So that's an example of something, you know, new, uh, that over the 20 years I've been moving down that stream and plucking out from the banks whatever I can to uh, increase my own understanding with new things, increase my um, way of teaching things I know to others. And the two are always, you know, overlapping hugely. Um, and it's a joy. It's really a joy. So that's something right at the top um, is, you know, distinguishing between 
the snake in the path that you then jump back to escape versus choosing another path that you then prevent or postpone the appearance of the snake by changing where you walk. So one of the things that I really uh, appreciated in the first part of the new article was the discussion of ethics and ethics Mm -hmm. versus science. And I think that that is definitely worth exploring a little bit because we all know that the way that that uh, with certain in certain we'll take some of the medical discoveries that people are making that what we can do because of the discoveries we've made the scientific discoveries we've made can sometimes run ahead of our ethics mm-hmm. and we get into trouble. You think about some of the the things that we can do with gene manipulation. So you can you can look at. Uh, child of a fetus and say, ah, this child has a gene that predicts that it will get some hideous disease, we can go in and with the CRISPR technique, we can go in and eliminate that gene and this child will be healthy. And that sounds wonderful. But then that technique can also go in and say, we can make sure that the children all have these characteristics, designer children. That, that's the, mm-hmm. the phrase I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden, ethics are getting tangled up with what we can do. And so we need, I think there's always that teasing part of what are the ethical concerns that, that matter. Mm-hmm. As And then let's look at how that impacts the choices we make and what the science tells us. Yes, and that's why I wrote in the ethics section of this article, I wanted to acknowledge to the reader that ethics is such a deep, deep well of expertise. And I would need several more lifetimes to gain even beginning expertise at the many related fields to our field of of behavior change. So it's not something that I'm well-versed in. There's so many things I wish I were well-versed in. Um, But in working with Dr. Bernie Rowland, who is a deeply, deeply um, experienced ethicist, um, I did have conversations with him as we walked along a path one day about how we bring these together. And he spent his entire career bringing together ethics and practice, particularly in the veterinary world. So it's difficult. It is difficult to, this is not a a simple, simplistic path when we try and bring the two together. And what I've offered in the hierarchy graphic, the tool is a simplistic path. You know, I've, I've said that this is, or I believe, I think that this is such a complex question. The difference between what we can do and what we should do is such a complex question that in it it almost threatens to immobilize us as the complexity on the planet often threatens to do, to immobilize us because things are just too complicated to for me to find a way through those weeds. And um, sometimes the best we can do is to at least start with a simple schema to activate us, to move us off immobilization, and, and then build from there. So one of the expressions is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that applies both to the behaviors that you want to teach. There are some behaviors that you know, yes, you can teach them and you could teach them with positive reinforcement, but really, should you be teaching them? Kay Lawrence used to use the teaching dogs, particularly dogs with the very heavy set front ends to do um, handstands, paw stands, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them. And that structurally, that's not a good thing to be teaching these dogs. Um, Just because you can breed a dog with a very uh, shortened nose, doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can does not mean that you should. And then, and then just because you can 
get a horse to stop biting by smacking it across the mouth with a two by four doesn't mean that you should. So it's where do you begin in all of this? And when I'm teaching, I, I talk about the three layers that every training method has, every training method. And the first layer is the belief system mm-hmm. and that you should, you should know the belief system of every trainer that you work with. And they're, they're often revealed. They're revealed through the words. Yes. You know, when you have a trainer who, who refers to a horse, for example, as that chestnut mare, instead of by the name that, that her person has given this horse, and you know that lazy horse, that uh, you know th- things of that sort, they reveal their belief system. Mm-hmm. They reveal their belief system through the tools that they use. So you don't necessarily have to say, so what is your belief system to know what someone's belief system is? They -hmm. will reveal a lot about how someone feels about animals and that out of the belief system evolve certain principles Mm -hmm. that guide your training choices. So one of my core principles is that safety always comes first, and that's for the horse as well as the handler. So that means that there are certain methods that may work. So, for example, if you have a non-loader and you want to get this horse on the trailer and somebody comes along, you know, the helpers come out of the woodwork and somebody comes along and says, don't worry, little lady, I can get that horse on the trailer. Just bring out this winch and we'll haul the horse onto the trailer. And I would have to say, you know, I, you know, thank you so much. And I, you know, I know that your method works sometimes, but... I, you know, I'm just a little worried that my horse could get hurt. And so thank you so much. I, I, I'll, I'll find another way to do it. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not going to change their worldview or in any way, but I just don't want my horse winched onto a trailer. Thank you very much because it violates that, that first principle. And so in the, in the hierarchy, you want the learner to have, so it's, it's the least intrusive most positive and least intrusive is connected to control. And so having a learner who has control of the situation has them where you, you maximize to the greatest degree possible the control that that individual has. So how would you phrase that as a core underlying principle that would help you to, to choose the methods? Because you know, out of your belief system, out of your principles, then evolve the choices that you make, the how-tos. Mm-hmm. The application. Yeah. So how would you phrase that as a core underlying principle? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, it, those are, that's a great scheme. Schema. I'll look up the difference between the two words today. <laughs> you know, first is your belief system. Are animals thinking, feeling you know, organisms on Absolutely. the planet, or are they something different? And the neat thing about belief systems, and I'm just going to interrupt sure. for a second, is, so so I the way I always describe it, for me, is that I read Black Beauty when I was little, and I cried when Ginger died. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that tells you a lot about that I'm very sentimental when it comes to my animals, my horses. So that, that tells you an enormous amount, just that statement. And that I believe that animals are intelligent beings with rich emotional lives, Mm -hmm. and they deserve to be treated with great kindness and fairness. And now someone could come along and say, but you pride yourself on being science-based and having a background in the sciences, et cetera, et cetera. Prove to me that animals are intelligent. And I would have to say, it's a belief system and I don't have to prove a belief system. So maybe we need to place ethics versus science, because there's a part of the article that discusses that, which I thought was very interesting. It means that sitting at the core of how I make my choices is yeah. a belief system, is is that belief. Yeah, and I would, let me um, just grab something and then we'll we'll move on uh, okay. to where Dominique is, is going to is uh, I think, first of all, your question was, what is the core principle that is implicit as well as explicit, hopefully, in the article? And it is that animals need control uh, to survive and thrive. 
And another core principle is that behavior is a function of the consequences, the context in which it occurs. So when you adhere to those two principles, it leads to very different application. It leads to the application of giving animals a voice, an opportunity to say no. And it leads to the application of changing behavior by changing conditions, not the reverse. And um, so I I did want to say that I think that's a dynamite trio. And um, we should put that in an article with widespread dissemination. I think it people walking through those three categories will, excuse me for my froggy voice, will be benefited by this schema. The other thing I wanted to say is that I don't want to jump over uh, something that I, I know we don't disagree, our words are different, and really make them sharp for the listeners is that when someone says to me, prove that animals are intelligent or prove that they're emotional, I would not say, I don't have to prove it, it's a belief system. I would say, what do you mean by intelligent and emotional? What does it look like? Let's talk about what we could measure. And then we can do that series of studies. In fact, they've been done. So the flaw in debates and discussions along these lines as you've posed them is we continue to go down that path of debate without ever having first described operationally what we mean. My answer when people say, prove to me that animals are intelligent is, prove to me that you are intelligent. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm trying to just powerfully and humorously make the point that, and you've heard me say that in the audiences. We've shared, Alex, so many audiences together, and it's always really just such a, I don't know, a really a a joy and um, spurs me to be my better self when I see you out there in that crowd. Um, (laughs) You've heard me say to them, uh, I'm not against anthropomorphism. Done well, it is our source of compassion Mm. because the problem is bigger than my inability to know what an animal is thinking or feeling. I can't know what you're thinking or feeling. So it's about um, Susan Pomorphism, I should be very cautious in projecting my own prediction of thinking and emotions onto another organism, regardless of species. Anthropomorphism is not a problem of humans projecting human thinking and emotions onto non-humans. It's a problem of not being able to project well or validly Uh, how another human is thinking or feeling. And man, I learned that lesson, you know, every day that I assume I know what you're thinking or feeling when you've done something that is a negative action to me, but you have a completely different intention. You were coming from a completely different history, a different place. And, um, you know, so that's how I would handle that is proved to me. I wouldn't say we can't. I would say we can if we agree on a measure. So we attract experiences that support our belief systems. And we interpret things. And I'm, you know, I'm just thinking of, uh, we're all living through the same coronavirus experience, but look mm-hmm. at what's happening, the divisions that are occurring within the country. So, you know, in the 100 years ago, Women did not, well, we're creeping up on 100 years ago, we just got the vote. But 100 years ago, women could not hold the jobs that they hold today. They couldn't vote. There were all things that were said about women and believed about women that, oh, you can't do this. And that's changed over time. So we can, we can show the data that says, yes, women can do this job and they can do this job and they can do that job. So what we see over time is that our belief systems shift, they change. The the data that supports those belief systems helps to push those changes. Not sure what how, um, how to pull this together into a tight thought, but we can say, so what does what does it look like when you say that an animal is, is intelligent? What is the data that would support that? 
but I, you know, through each through each era in which we have made statements about this class of people, this group of people, this type of animal can or cannot fit this category. Can't, they're not. They they can't do this. They're not intelligent. They're 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 stupid. They're lazy. They don't feel they're, anything. Uh, they don't have feelings. Right. That there there was clearly there was something there that supported that belief system. Right. So how do we, it's like quicksand. How do we trust that the evidence that we are drawing in Mm -hmm. that supports our belief system that animals are intelligent is data that we can trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Two two thoughts come to mind. And I think that that your this question is something that I think of often and that I do find immobilizing <laughs> often. And I have to remind myself that it's unnatural to be immobilized. It's understandable given certain conditions, but it's not natural. One thing, of course, you know, the the obvious top level answer is that well, we understand that science is not about generating immutable facts. It's about right. generating workable hypotheses and those facts are always changing and so we we need to teach uh kids better about what their expectations for science should Mm. be it should be that it's ever moving ever changing ever self-correcting and that that is uh the very most important thing about science that distinguishes it from personal experience is that through replication and public peer review um, it's moving all the time. It's self-correcting all the time based on data, hopefully. And um, with personal opinion, it's less of a systematic formal process. So one thing is you just sort of get comfortable. Your expectations start to match the reality of what science can and cannot do for us. And when it self-corrects again, you just say, um, oh, well, here we go. I'm moving to the left a little bit now. Oops, moving to the right. And we certainly have those demands with COVID now mm. as the information uh, has unfolded in front, yes. in front of us. Yes. And of course, that takes us down a different path. I'll resist. I'll just describe that um, having been presented with things th- as though they were scientific when they were really political broke my heart. You know, don't wear masks. They don't help as really a political maneuver to save masks. I mean, you know, when science gets um, embroiled in politics to a big degree, uh, then, you know, then we're really in trouble. Where do we turn for our information that helps us act? So that's one thing. Oh, I I guess I've sort of lost your thread, Alex. No, I think you, I think you picked it up well. You know, the, the thread of validity. Yeah, yeah, the validity and, and how do we trust that we're not just simply accumulating data that supports our belief system, but actually... Yeah, it's a more even, comprehensive grab um, out of all of the information, what rises yeah. to the top. It, it's very difficult. And I think it's very difficult in the social sciences, particularly rather than the physical sciences. Uh, it's hard there too. Because I, you know, I can think of, sorry, I, mm-hmm. didn't, no, I, you know, I can think of one easy example mm-hmm. when you say that um, a certain group of people are lazy and you look at their behavior and they, you, you see, you know, how would you describe lazy? Well, they're slow to respond. They do the minimum amount that is required of them. They're just this this group of people, that's their makeup. You know, it's in right. them that they're lazy. Right. Without recognizing that that group of people has been under an enormous amount of punishment throughout mm-hmm. their entire life. And that what does punishment create? It creates an individual who will do the minimum mm-hmm. to that is required to avoid the punishment, but who's not going to offer anything beyond that, and who is going to have an enormous amount 
of escape and avoidance behavior, mm-hmm. which we would then say, oh, look at that lazy individual, whether that's an animal or a person. So my belief system is going to draw me into uh, one conclusion about the behavior that I'm seeing, or it's going to draw me down into this other path that begins to understand the effects of punishment and that what I'm seeing is avoidance behavior, what I'm seeing is escape behavior. And, you know, if I change the uh, consequences, then I might see a very different kind of response in that individual. And we certainly see that in the horses, where you start out with a horse where someone would say, oh, it's a lazy, lazy horse. And then you start clicker training. And all of a sudden, you have this enthusiastic individual who's who can hardly wait to get into the arena with you, mm-hmm. but bring out the old uh, conditions. And all of a sudden, you see the in quotes, lazy individual again. Right. So what you're describing is a society-wide lack of knowledge about how behavior works. Yes. That the predominating belief system is that behavior is inside the organism. And there's too little attention it is uh, condi- to conditions, that conditions are underestimated. That behavior comes from genetic tendencies, but those genes themselves are moving based on environmental input and late-breaking news and from behavioral history and current conditions. And so on our best day, and hopefully we can learn to do it on our worst day as well, when somebody comes at us with a different belief system and anger or antagonism that we ask ourselves, instead of retaliating, we we ask ourselves what in that person's uh, behavioral history accounts and current conditions accounts for this approach. You know, that's the question. For me, that's the question always. I'm not always in the right headspace. I have to get past my own, you know, emotions that are tracking, you know, the difficult scenario somebody annoying me or, uh, you know, coming, making me defensive or whatever negative interactions we have with others is to stop and say, this pattern of behavior, of aggressive behavior on their part is a reflection of their behavioral history. The question is, what, why would this person be acting this way? So if we take someone who's, for example, lazy, I moved into the person who's always angry or aggressive in their interactions with me is to not say that person has aggression or has laziness, but this person is behaving aggressively, behaving lazily. What in their behavioral history brought them to that behavior pattern? In other words, another way of saying it is, um, and their current conditions, another way of saying that is, what's the reinforcer? What's the function? Yes. Why are they taking this tack instead of that tack? What reinforces lazy behavior, angry behavior, and and so forth and so on? That's on the individual level, which is where I'm most comfortable and most interested working. But then we have our people working at the um, societal level, the sociologists and behavioral economists, and they're they're asking, you know, on a on a group or culture categorical level what brought this culture to have this tendency yeah and it's all very interesting and it's all very complicated yes but it's not the complication i'll just say the complexity does not discount the relevance of behavior analysis of that science's contribution to understanding behavior no it makes it all the more important Mm -hmm. Because what I, I'm tempted to do is to tie this back to the where we started this conversation, which was with the uh, coronavirus and this whole question of wearing masks, not wearing masks. Mm-hmm. The And control very much comes into this because, right? for example, right now in New York State, there's a 
for people who are flying into the state from uh, states with with high rates of infection. There's a two-week quarantine. And Governor Cuomo has just made it mandatory that as people are leaving, getting off the airplanes, and before they leave the airport, they have to leave their information so they can be checked on to make sure that they are quarantining. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, there's a $2,000 fine. Mm -hmm. So last week, the fine wasn't there. Then there were various spikes that they were seeing that were happening from people out of state, and they've got the tracing that they can really find out where these infections are coming from. They've got a really good tracing system at the moment. And so now there's this $2,000 fine. And masks becoming mandatory in various places. There will be penalties, and there will be penalties for behaving this way instead of that way. And what I'd like to explore is on a personal level, you know, when we go to a store and there's somebody who is not wearing a mask or has forgotten their mask or is going up the, the, the down aisle in the grocery store, whatever it is, yeah. how do we as individuals find the most effective way to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And then on a, on a larger societal level, how do we shift that needle so that we do not become uh, a, an oppressively controlling society? Because we've got an opportunity to step in there ahead of all of that mm-hmm. if we can just figure it out. So simple little yeah, question for you to solve the problems quest. of the right. So so what I'm asking you to do, Susan, is to solve the problems the of planet. the country right now. <laughs> and you've got five minutes. <laughs> wow, that long? Thank you. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I I I figured you you didn't need all five, but I'd be generous. Yeah, and I think it's important for us, as I said, to you know, fight past the immobilization and find our point of contact, our point of contribution. Yeah, there's so much that I could tell you and could say about this and and to listen to you as well. My point of contact, we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, is I give myself permission to be a small breaststroke behavior or contributor. contributor. And so the ways that are on my list of changing the planet are really uh, one individual at a time by teaching and sending hopefully out new, you know, new students who now uh, have a different view of their own power to influence change by changing conditions. And that we do ask those questions on that local level where I'm most comfortable living is to say, I'm going to go into Staples to buy a new printer. And how am I going to navigate the people who work there's behavior around keeping at least six feet and making sure their masks are on properly. And I prepare myself with ways to do that. For example, the staff person who was helping me by the printer kept walking closer and I kept stepping back and she kept coming closer. (laughs) I I said to her behind my mask, uh, I see that you're a very warm person because when I move back, you move closer to close the gap between us. And normally that is a really beautiful thing in my life to have share that warmth. But I'm worried that I'm going to infect you and I don't want that responsibility. Can we work together to keep that distance even though it's not, you know, easy? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So, you know, or I saw, you know, the things you pull out of your hat to influence on yeah, that individual. It's a beautiful way of level. phrasing it. And it was, yeah. and it was, it was great. She did try hard, and I did have to remind her. But at least we had made that reinforce, reinforcing contact with one another, a drop in that trust account. Which by yes. that I mean, you know, a shared, shared reinforcers. And uh, there was a young woman behind the cash register when I ran in to get something at the store, and she had her mask below her nose. Yes, and. 
I said to her, it must be really difficult to keep that on all day long. I get to go home and take it off. So I, I appreciate the commitment you're making to difficulty by wearing it. But if you don't keep it over your nose, you might as well take it off. And she looked at me really startled because it was a kind of punitive expression. And she said, oh, yeah. And she kind of, yeah, you know, uh, moved it around a little bit. And it came to me to lie, sort of. (laughs) I said, (laughs) I am a doctor. And so I probably shouldn't admit this on a podcast with your large listening. <laughs> well, you to. are a doctor, Dr. Yeah. Susan Friedman. That's right. And in fact, yes. I've learned that uh, it was PhDs, academics, that uh, coined the use of that term doctor. Medical doctors had long in previous centuries been called physicians. And it's only yes. relatively recently that they started using the word doctor. So I said it with impunity. I didn't say I was a physician. <laughs> Right. (laughs) And I said, I'm a doctor and I just want you to know that what you do will affect every person that comes in here. And this is what caring looks like for me to, for me to have the courage to say that to you is what caring looks like completely changed her interaction with me. Oh, thank you. You're right. And we laughed and I said, you know, it must be hard to be mothered by a stranger. And she laughed and, you know, This is, of course, one of the benefits of being in your 60s is you can talk to people in their 20s this way and hopefully get away with it. So, you know, my my answer surrounds, you know, these two stories is I'm trying to find ways that people don't feel the burn, don't feel punishment, but that I can also protect both of us. And that does take thought. But I think those two, two, for, for us to have those models of people like you showing us how to influence behavior uh, without being burning, intrusive, that's, that's an important part of it. And in the article, you talk about that. And at the very end, you write, this is where contemporary trainers excel. This is our deep expertise. We are expert at changing behavior by changing conditions with a minimum of force and coercion. I think the new model part of it, you know, to see people do it. I mean, you're certainly an inspiration. And I know that being in contact with the clicker community has provided me with models that I did not have before or very few. Yes. And I had my models as well. Um, Wells Hively, one of Skinner's students, uh, along with Ogden Lindsley, the two of them were buddies through graduate school, was a wonderful, beautiful model of how to apply that least intrusive principle and to combine ethics and effectiveness in, for him, very elegant ways. And so that is a value of mine to continue to ask the question when someone doesn't do it this way what is their reinforcer when someone comes at the person the kid behind the register having to wear this mask all day long or the the person who helped me with the printer you know when people come at them what is the reinforcer what in their previous learning history has brought them to choose those more intrusive ways of behaving And what can we do about it? You know, when you describe me as a model, I I am compelled to say on on my best day, you know, on a good day, I can feel myself riding those complex waves of interpersonal interaction. And on my bad day, you know, I get in the car and I bang my head against the wheel and I say to myself, oh, for heaven, you know what? I cannot believe this. These people wearing masks underneath their nose. How does this happen? <laughs> so, you know, I um, secured the website. I haven't expanded it yet, but uh, I secured the website. Dominique, it's called Better Coach Than Player. You know this expression. So I always want to say that, you know, my my modeling is on good days, but there are a lot of bad days too where I just can't seem to summon up what I know about behavior and influence fast enough to, to be able to influence the world 
with our values, but I'm always trying. I can tell you that I am always trying. So I think your point is a great one. We, we as a community of behavior changers, whether we're teachers, animal trainers, all of those whose job objectives it is to explicitly change another organism's behavior are, should be held to a higher standard. In my opinion, we are held to a higher standard. If I'm going to teach people about having a softer footprint procedurally without losing effectiveness, then I've got to figure out how to model that, even if it is just on my good days, you know, and that I try hard to have more good days than bad every year of my life. And so that's, you know, number one in your three-tiered system. Alex, those are my belief systems. And if we ask, well, where did we get them from? You know, of course, I'm a child of the uh, 60s and 70s. And those days really left a big influence on me. And then it jives so beautifully with our science. You know, when you read Sidman and um, his great book, you know, The Fallout of Coercion and you. Yes. Yeah. There's certainly room for disagreement and debate. I always want to acknowledge that. And I feel I always have acknowledged that. But I will say that there is a standard of comportment that is consistent with our values as uh, behavior analysts and positive-based trainers that we should we should try hard to um, to accomplish in these debates and disagreements. So can we go back to uh, for a second to the ethics and the place of ethics? versus the place of science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think you described that ethics should come first. I think a way of saying that is that number one on Alexandra's list is our belief system, and that's where our ethics will will live and grow. And that there's room for debate about ethics as well. The quote that always is sort of a, a light um, a lighthouse for me is the one that I shared again. It's in others of my articles um, from Einstein, yeah. you know, saying that these really are two different disciplines. And while they inform one another, it's important to protect them from being the same as one another. Science proceeds by the process of, you know, of the scientific method, data-driven at its best on a good day, right? Because we see lots of problems with people applying these standards and the scientific method too. Um, But on a good day, we need to see the data as it is. And then we get to decide, you know, what to do about it or where we do what about it. Because that relates to this discussion too is, If we come out with our most complex behavior analysis model for understanding, predicting, and changing behavior when it needs to be changed, my feeling is that we will overload our newcomers and they will turn away. And so I've always characterized my work as behavior 101, you know, the the beginning, basic understanding of behavior analysis. Now, 20 years later, 40 over the whole course of my career, uh, 20 over my animal career, my non-human animal career, because people are learning more, we have more contact with um, people, there's more interest and there is or there are better ways to get the information to them. It's not just, you know, when I was coming up, it was predominantly Uh, university classes. That's how you learned behavior analysis, by going through a university system. And nowadays, because of all of the great podcasts and webinars and conferences, more and more information at uh, the wide variety of levels of expertise are available to people. And that's both a curse and a blessing that I think is worth discussing with you as well is that relates to your question of ethics versus science is, 
You know, how do we disseminate this information? I almost feel as though I should apologize for stopping here. When I was editing this conversation, I went straight through to the end and I thought, I can't possibly break this one up. It needs to be listened to all of a piece. It's such, it's such a gem. All the threads weave together so beautifully that you really want to listen to it as a whole unit. And then I looked at how long it was and I thought, I can't possibly put this out as a podcast that's over two hours long. I really need to break it up. So that's what I've done. I promise you I won't make you wait very long for part two. Susan gives us a tremendous gift in her answer to the question, how do we teach behavioral analysis or horse training or really any subject in which someone wants to develop a degree of expertise? Especially if you work on your own, this will be an important podcast for you. But I am going to make you wait so you can come fresh to this final segment of the conversation. And right now, I'll just add a couple of reminders. You can find Susan's articles in her website, behaviorworks.org. And if you want to learn more about my work, do please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find my online course, the books and DVDs, my blog, and the announcements for upcoming events. And speaking of events, I'm going to be scheduling some stay-at-home clinics for the fall. I'll have those dates up as I get things finalized. And there are still a couple of spots available in the upcoming science camp. That's going to be held over Labor Day weekend of 2020. And our, my co-presenters are Mary Hunter and Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz. You can go to theclickercenter.com to learn more about these events. And I do hope that I'll see you at one of them. They're a great way to explore clicker training. So thank you again for listening. And next week, we'll have part three of Susan's conversations.